0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. What a joy it is to gather today with believers all around the world to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus it's a day we've set aside to do that. Of course, the resurrection has implications every day and every week and every Sunday. But it's this day that we, in particular, with focused hearts, celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. And it's right that we do something like that because the resurrection is central truth, really, of Christianity. The whole, the whole faith of Christianity rises or falls on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ is not risen, he's not the Messiah, he's not the promised one, he's not the one the Old Testament said would come to save his people from their sins. If Christ is not risen, the Bible is not true because the Bible declares that Christ is risen. If Christ is not risen from the grave, the apostles were all at best deceived, at worst manipulative liars. If Christ is not raised from the dead, men are still in their sins. And every one of us still stands accountable to God for our sins and still finds ourselves this morning under the wrath of God, the due, just wrath of God for the sins we've committed. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, everything that the Bible claims about the good news being good is not true. But we're God's people, and we've gathered today in this place to declare the truth. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. It is a fact. It is a reality. And the implications of that truth are absolutely significant. We could, in fact, spend weeks sort of exploring all the implications. At the very least, the resurrection tells us that the the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice as a due payment paid in full for the sins of all who would believe on him that is an implication of his resurrection the payment has been made and the father has accepted the payment and he's validated that by raising his son from the dead because christ is raised another implication is that we who have placed our faith and trust in him also will be raised like he was raised The Bible says Christ's resurrection, that he was raised as a first fruits from the dead, meaning that he was the first one who was raised from the dead as sort of a precursor to all who will believe upon him and place their faith in him, will likewise be raised from the dead as well. His resurrection proves Uh, that he is the promised king of the line of David. Every other king has died and every other king has rotted in the grave, but not this king. This king was raised from the dead. In raising from the dead, Jesus proves that he is the eternal king who was promised from the line of David, that son of David who would come and establish his throne forever. The resurrection proves that he is that promised king of the Old Testament. But for our purposes this morning, there's one implication I want to give attention to of the resurrection, and that is this. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, he will one day return to establish his eternal kingdom. Because Christ is raised from the dead, he is going to return. Just as sure as he was raised, he will come back. And just as sure as he was raised from the dead, he will return to establish his kingdom. The work of Christ was not done at the resurrection. The work of redemption was in part complete, but his full kingdom work was not yet accomplished. In fact, it is still yet in the future. Now in the first century, when we dive into Luke chapter 17, there was great interest in the coming of the promised king of the Old Testament. The Israelites looked, and they longed, and they had for generations longed for the promised king of the line of David, the one who would come and defeat their enemies and establish his kingdom, his eternal kingdom of peace and justice, where he would judge the world for its sin and reward his people and rule with them forever. The problem is in the first century there were two pieces to the to the sort of establishment of the kingdom of God that the first century Jews simply did not understand. There are two very important pieces of that work that were not clear to them. The first piece is that the Messiah's kingdom was going to be established in two parts. They had no idea that this was going to be the case. They had no idea that the coming of this davidic king this promised messiah when he came to establish his kingdom he was going to come first and at first time to establish an invisible kingdom a spiritual kingdom that would exist only in the hearts of those who believe upon him and that later there was going to be a second coming of this king where he would establish his visible worldwide rule that would be eternal First century Jews thought when the Messiah came all of that was going to happen at once and that was their expectation. They had no concept that the Messiah's kingdom would be established in two parts and they also had no uh, concept of the fact that those two parts would be separated by a very significant period of time. That he would come first, he would depart, and there would be a significant length of time and he would then return. In our text today in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is explaining both to the religious leaders and primarily to his own followers these two realities. They don't fully comprehend it at this point, but later they will. And so it's here in verses 20 through 37 to the end of the chapter that Jesus is describing for them that he is the king and he's explaining to them the nature of his kingdom. So I'll read the text to you, and then we'll begin to explore it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the son of man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Jesus Christ explaining the nature of his kingdom. There are three things about his kingdom that we need to see in this sort of lengthy text. We won't explore every single nuance of the text, but I want you to at least see these three characteristics of the nature of his kingdom. The first thing I want you to see in verses 20 and 21 is this. The kingdom of God arrived because the king was present. The kingdom of God had arrived because the king was present. Now, as we get into the text this morning, we realize that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are still around. If you've been walking with us through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been sort of following Jesus along his ministry, we've been seeing the religious leaders following him everywhere he goes. All the way back in chapter 5, we see them sort of starting to engage him and encounter him, and in many ways, they followed as a curiosity, and in a lot of ways, they they followed out of jealousy and out of anger. The more popular Jesus became, the more people were drawn to him and the message he was preaching, the more people were drawn away from them and their power was beginning to wane and their lives were beginning to be exposed and their hypocrisy was being revealed and that inflamed them. And so as Jesus' ministry goes on, their, their anger and their resentment and their hatred toward him grew to a fevered pitch. So everywhere he goes, they're dogging his steps, and they're trying to find ways to discredit him. They are already, by chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, plotting to kill him. So it's no surprise here that they are present still in Luke 17 in our text today. All the way back in chapter 15, we saw the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. They were livid that he would associate with people that they saw as beneath them. That he would hang around with people who were overt sinners, who lived ungodly lives. That he would rub shoulders with them. That he would laugh with them. That he would fellowship with with them. That he would sit at a table and share a meal with them and love them enough to tell them the truth, the gospel, and how they might be redeemed and reconciled to their heavenly father. The Pharisees would never do such a thing and they hated him for doing it. In chapter 16 we're told they were lovers of money and as they heard him teach on the corrupting power and influence of the love of money they were livid and so now as he makes his way toward jerusalem for the last time they are still continuing to engage him now at this point they have a specific question and the question that's on their mind here is when will the kingdom of god come They want to know when the kingdom of God is going to come. They've been waiting, like all of the Israelites had been, for the Messiah to come, for the promised king of David to come and establish his eternal kingdom. And they were wanting to know from Jesus, who claimed to be the king, when was that going to happen? They had very clear expectations of what it was going to look like when that happened. They expected a a military ruler to rise, to overthrow their enemies, and to establish his kingdom. They specifically expected him to rally an army and to overthrow the Romans who were oppressing the people of Israel. They specifically expected him to establish his glorious kingdom on earth immediately and to vindicate his people in Jerusalem. They, they expected him to regather all of the Israelites who were dispersed around the world, regather them in Jerusalem, and establish an earthly kingdom immediately. They expected him to establish an earthly kingdom where every other nation of the world would come in subversion to his kingdom. And they expected him to immediately usher in a time of eternal peace and righteousness and glory. They had no concept of the fact that he was coming twice and his presence right now was for part of that purpose, but for most of it, they would have to wait They had no idea that he would come first humbly and lowly to seek and to save the lost, and that he would come later boldly and visibly to establish his eternal, physical, earthly kingdom. So here in front of them, Jesus is claiming to be the messianic king, yet they aren't seeing any of the expected signs. He's not rallying an army. He's not gathering up a posse to overthrow Rome. They don't seem to see any of the signs that they expected of the Messiah. When they look at Jesus and when they look at His ministry. And so they ask Him, when is the kingdom going to come? When are all these things that we're expecting going to happen? And Jesus answers them really in two ways. The first thing He says to them is this, you won't be able to see the coming of the kingdom by observing externally. You won't be able to observe on the outside the initial coming of the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. The kingdom that he had come in his first advent to establish was an invisible kingdom. There was going to be no coronation. There was going to be no army. There was going to be no political movement to overthrow the government. It was going to be a spiritual kingdom that reigned in the hearts of all who would believe upon him by faith. That was the kingdom he was coming to establish, and there's no way externally to see that because it exists invisibly in the hearts of all who follow the king. It was a spiritual kingdom, and the only way to enter it was by faith in the king, was to repent of sin and to bow down before the king. And the men who were asking this question were men who had outright rejected Jesus and refused to do that very thing. So the first thing he says to him is this. You want to know about the coming of the kingdom? The first thing you understand is you're looking for all these external signs and you'll never be able to see it that way. The second part of his answer is this. The kingdom is already present in your midst. Not only won't you be able to see it by all looking for the signs you're looking for, but it's already here and you're clueless. Behold, he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in your midst. While the religious leaders had rejected Jesus and were plotting to kill him, not everybody had rejected Jesus. He had been teaching and he had been preaching the good news of the gospel. And people of all shapes and sizes, men, women, rich, poor, from every class of society, from the city, from the suburbs, from the country, were hearing and they were believing. They were placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ they were repenting of their sin. They were trusting in Him. And they were entering into His kingdom by becoming subjects of the King. The Pharisees were literally surrounded by the kingdom. It was all around them in the hearts of Jesus' followers. And they were still thinking the kingdom was something that was coming in the future, but it was right in front of them, and they were utterly blind to be able to see it. You see, the kingdom had arrived when the King arrived. And it had been expanding ever since, all around them. The kingdom of God arrived the moment Jesus arrived. You'll recall his birth in Bethlehem was about as unspectacular and humble as any human birth could ever be. There was nothing spectacular about it. There was nothing that would have called attention to it, to anybody. Nobody would have observed it from the outside and said, look, the kingdom of God is arriving. He was born to ordinary teen parents who were not wealthy, who were not popular, who were not noticeable in any way, not Mary and Joseph, just ordinary by all external observation. He was born in Bethlehem, a a small village on the outskirts of a town, the town that was beyond The town that was already nowhere he was born not even in a not even in a nice place a barn or a cave where animals were kept and fed because of the lowliness and the humility of his arrival the majority of Israel had absolutely no idea that the kingdom of God had arrived because the king had been born Only a few people understood the significance of what had happened. Mary understood. In Luke chapter 1, long ago, we saw this. Mary was told, your son will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, the son you are going to have is going to be the Davidic king. He will reign over David's throne and he will reign forever. He is the king. Oddly enough, pagan religious leaders from a distant land understood this. We're told in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, when the Magi arrived, the question they were asking, where is he who has been born what? King of the Jews. The king had arrived. It's just that most people had no idea. At the birth of Jesus, the king had arrived and his kingdom began to be established And as he grew and as he established his ministry and began to preach and teach the gospel, the kingdom expanded and it grew as people heard the gospel and believed and became followers of the king. And today, the kingdom of God is still expanding in the same way. As missionaries go and share the gospel to the ends of the earth, as faithful pastors stand and preach the gospel week after week, as Christian believers reach across the back fence and talk to their neighbors about the good news of jesus christ as faithful believers go into their workplace and share the gospel with their lost friends and coworkers, and people hear the gospel and they believe and they entrust their lives to jesus christ and bow before the king the kingdom of god grows and the kingdom of god continues to expand it was then and it is now an invisible kingdom but it's an immense kingdom. The religious leaders are quizzing Jesus about the timing of the coming of the kingdom, and Jesus says, it's all around you, and you can't see it. You can't see it because you've rejected me, the king. And when a person rejects the king, he's locked out of the kingdom. And to be locked out of the kingdom is to be blinded to its reality. And it's a dreadful state that these men found themselves in. Religious leaders, very, very religious, very outwardly moral, locked out of the kingdom of God. Still looking for something in the future that was already in front of them, and they had no idea. The kingdom of God was present because the king had arrived. But Jesus goes on to tell us more about the nature of His kingdom. Not only as it was at present, because the King had arrived, but it was inaugurated because the King is risen. We celebrate that today. Look at verse 25. Well, let's read back to verse 22. He said to the disciples, "The days are coming when you will see the one, uh, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it." Now he's looking into the future. We'll come back to this piece. And they will say to you, look there, look here, don't go out or follow them, for as lightning flashes in the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Here's what I want you to see. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The kingdom of God was present because the king had arrived, but the kingdom of God was about to be inaugurated through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus turns from, his, from the Pharisees who are asking the question. He has nothing else to say to them because they're locked out of the kingdom and they can't possibly understand anything else he has to say about it. And he turns to his disciples and he begins to talk to them more about the nature of his kingdom. And he explains to them that while the kingdom is already present... It is yet to be consummated at the end in its fullness, but before that happens, something else has to happen. He, the king, has to suffer and be rejected in this generation. Jesus is talking specifically about his death and about his resurrection. Although the kingdom had arrived because Jesus was present and ministering, his kingdom work was not yet complete. The problem of sin had not yet been fully dealt with. Mankind was still under the curse of sin, still accountable before God for its sin. Men were still liable for the wages of their sin, eternal death. And there was still no way for men and women to enter the kingdom of God and stand before a holy God. His teaching was astounding. It was unlike anything anybody had ever heard. His miracles were baffling and amazing, clear and unmistakable signs of his divinity. But his crowning achievement, his primary work that he came to do when he was speaking in Luke 17 was still yet to come. He still had to conquer sin once and for all. He still must conquer death once and for all. And he would do that by suffering and dying in the place of sinners and doing so securing forever their citizenship as his people in his eternal kingdom. For the disciples on this day, this was still in the future, albeit not very far in the future. From our standpoint in history, we know precisely how he accomplished that work, don't we? We know exactly what he did. The king of kings dealt with sin once and for all by his substitutionary death on a cross for sinners. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, While we were still sinners, say it with me, Christ died for us. Because our king is a loving and gracious and merciful king, he died so we can live. He died to purchase entrance into his eternal kingdom for us. He died to pay sin's penalty. He endured the fullness of the Father's wrath in our place. He substituted himself for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless son of God was treated like a sinner so that sinful people like us could be treated as though we were sinless. He suffered and died on a cross where our sin was imputed to him, charged to his account, and he paid for it so that his righteousness could be charged to our account, imputed to us, credited to our account, and we could enter his kingdom holy before Almighty God. Our king purchased our salvation by dealing once and for all with our sin. He died to restore us to a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Bible makes clear that my sin and your sin separates us from God. That He is holy and we are not. We cannot stand in His holy presence because of our sin. It's broken our relationship. It's broken our fellowship. And until it is dealt with, it'll remain that way. But first Peter chapter three tells us something remarkable. Verse 18, Paul, excuse me, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might get this. Bring us to whom? To God. He died in order to bring us to God. He died in order to bridge the gulf and reconcile us to our heavenly father. Paul writes in Colossians one twenty one and following, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The, the king of kings came and he inaugurated his own kingdom by dying in the place of sinners, by paying the price for our sin once and for all, by reconciling us to our heavenly Father through his death. There's only one way to be brought into the Father's eternal kingdom, and that's through Jesus. There is no other way. There's no other way to be reconciled to God except through the death of Jesus on your behalf. There's no other way. There's no good works, there's no good intentions, there's no being a good person, there's no doing religious things, there's not any religious system. It's only through the person and work of Christ on the cross that a man or a woman can enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way. The only way in is to be brought in by Christ the King who died for your sins. But not only did he suffer and die but he in, in defeating sin, but he defeated death once and for all through his resurrection. Jesus died and he was buried and he accomplished the redemption of his people, but he didn't stay buried. The Bible tells us that three days later he rose from the grave. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and following, beginning in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ was buried in a grave, literally, physically, and three days later, he escaped from that grave. He rose and returned to His heavenly Father, and He's alive today. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, this is the risen Christ speaking. He says, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Christ died, and Christ was raised He dealt once and for all with sin. He dealt once and for all with death. And he is alive today, ruling over all things. The man, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the promised Davidic King of David, is very much alive this moment. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things, awaiting the moment when he will return and consummate his kingdom in full. But apart from the suffering and the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. There is no hope for any person to ever enter into his eternal kingdom. So the kingdom arrived because the king was present. But the kingdom was inaugurated by his death and resurrection. But he tells us one last thing about the nature of his kingdom. It's a kingdom that'll be consummated because the king is returning the king is returning he established with the pharisees the current nature of his kingdom and now he turns his attention sort of toward the future explaining to his disciples that he's going to be going away and that he is going to be returning and there's going to be a time intervening there where they're going to wonder what's going on. A time is coming, he says, when they're going to want to see him but not be able. You have to rewind to verse 22 to see this. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That phrase, the days of the Son of Man, is a an Old Testament allusion from the book of Daniel, a prophecy in the book of Daniel to his second coming. You'll long to see that, you'll desire to see that, and you won't see it. He's saying to them, after his death and after his resurrection, they're going to want to see his return. These men loved him, and when he was gone, they were certainly going to want to see his return. And by all by all appearances, it seems that they thought that was going to happen in their lifetime. But even here, before it's all happened, Jesus is saying to them, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. You're going to want to see it, but you're not going to see it. You're not going to be able to. And since they're not going to be able to see it, he says to them, people are going to say to you, look here, look there, pointing to signs that he's returning. And he says, don't go after any of that stuff. There's always going to be people claiming that they have secret knowledge of when Christ is going to return. They're going to point to this sign or they're going to point to that sign or they're going to flip through the Bible and add up a bunch of numbers and make some sort of a math equation that equates to a day or a time or a date or a year or whatever. Or they'll twist some scripture to justify their own human conjecture as to when they think Christ is going to come back. And Jesus says to disciples then and disciples now, don't go after any of that nonsense. The hard reality is nobody knows when Jesus is going to return to consummate his kingdom. Nobody knows when he's going to come back to establish his visible, earthly, eternal kingdom. even though they won't see it he describes for them what it's going to be like when it happens he gives them some characteristics of his second coming so that at least recorded in the text of scripture the, the the followers of christ from generation to generation will at least have some indication of what it's going to be like should it happen in their generation and i just quickly with the time we have remaining want to just sort of zip through these things. It's a lengthy piece of the text, but the the principles are quite simple. Here's what he tells us about what it's going to be like when he returns to consummate his kingdom and the second coming. He says, first and foremost, it's going to be clear and obvious. It's going to be like lightning in the sky. He says, like lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And what Jesus is saying is, when he returns, there is going to be absolutely no question about what's going on. Absolutely no question. You're not going to have to go after ask somebody, well, what are the signs? And start adding up the pieces and putting a puzzle together. It's going to be like lightning. If you've ever been outside when lightning lights up the sky, there's no question what's going on. You see it, and everybody sees it. And that's what Jesus is saying When I come back to consummate this kingdom in full, it's going to be clear and it's going to be obvious. The first time Jesus came, it was quiet and it was private and it was largely unnoticed, but it will not be like that the second time. In fact, it will be the exact opposite of that. And it will be so clear and it will be so obvious that nobody will be able to miss it. Like a flash of lightning, his return will be visible and it will be unmistakable. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29, Jesus is speaking, he gives more information about this. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heavens the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When Christ returns, everybody's going to see it. And there will be no question what is going on. In Revelation 19 11 and following the apostle john was given a a preview of what this is going to look like and he describes it this way he says then i saw heaven open and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems that's crowns And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, I don't know what all of that imagery looks like in your mind when you read it, but I can tell you sufficiently that whatever that actually is, when it happens, everybody's going to know what's going down. The Lord Jesus Christ will appear in all of his divine glory. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the King of all kings will return. And nobody will wonder what's happening. The whole world will see Jesus Christ arrayed in all of his divine glory. There will be no question. Nobody will have to go looking for signs. Nobody will be like, oh, you know, something. I heard something was going on. I was in the store. I missed it. It'll be clear and it'll be obvious. He goes on to say, beyond that, it'll be unexpected and inescapable. Listen to verse 26 and following. Just as in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the days with the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and he pulls two stories as illustrations, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And he uses... The, the, the atmosphere of the culture in both of those days as a descriptive of what it's going to be like when he returns the second time. Things are going to be going on in the world like they were going on in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. What was the world like in the days of Noah and the days of Lot? Well, in Genesis 6-5, we see, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. What was the world like? What were things like in the days of Noah? There was widespread disregard for God. There was widespread disregard for any kind of holy living. People lived in open wickedness, defying God, living in unrestrained sin, and they couldn't have cared less. They went about their lives doing their everyday tasks, all the things that they thought were so very important to be doing here, there, and everywhere. Completely oblivious of God. Completely oblivious of His judgment that was to come. There was rampant wickedness and people were busy and they were oblivious. Well, Noah was building an ark for 50, 60, 70 years and warning people about what was to come. What were people doing? Well, they were doing what people do every day. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. They were getting up and they were going to work. They were conducting business. They were hosting parties and they were getting married. They were busy with their kids and they were preparing for their future. They were doing all the things people do all the time. What they were not doing is they were not repenting of their sin and they were not getting their affairs in order to meet the judgment of Almighty God. I'm sure they thought Noah was nuts right up until the time that Noah and his family entered the ark and the rain began to fall. And the judgment of God was upon them and they were oblivious. They never saw it coming. The same thing was true in the days of Lot. In Lot's day, Lot and his family lived in Sodom, a notoriously sinful and wicked city, notorious for its unrestrained wickedness and sexual debauchery. God sends an angel to, to snag Lot and his family out of that city because he's about to bring his judgment on the sin of the people in that city via fire from heaven that's going to consume the entire population and everything that they own. What were people doing on the day that that was going to take place? What were they doing? They were doing what they did every day. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. Right up until the time God rained fire down and wiped the city off the map. In both cases, in Noah's day and in Lot's day, the judgment of God was unexpected and it was inescapable. And Jesus says, when I come back to consummate my kingdom, it's going to be like that. It's going to be unexpected and it's going to be inescapable. What are people going to be doing when he returns? They're going to be doing what people do all the time. People are going to be busy doing things. They're going to be dropping the kids off at work. They're going to be checking their email. They're going to be standing in line at Starbucks. They're going to be going to a business meeting. They're going to be scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or I don't know all the rest of them, but some of those things. They'll be watching Netflix or walking the dog or having a chat around the dinner table. They'll be going to the bank to make a deposit or a withdrawal. They'll be planning a vacation for the next year. They'll be planning what car to buy or what next house they're going to move into. And they'll have no idea that the king is about to come and that he's going to gather his people into his kingdom and he's going to bring judgment to the world. When the king comes back to consummate his kingdom, it's going to be clear and obvious and it's going to be unexpected and it's going to be inescapable. And finally, he tells in this, it's going to be personal and it's going to be final. Verses 34 and 35. I tell you in the night there will be, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. When Christ returns to consummate his kingdom, it's going to be a personal and final issue. It's not going to matter who you're married to or who your friends are or who your co workers are. When King Jesus returns, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not a person has entered his kingdom by repenting of their sin and placing their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and bowing to him as their king. That's the only thing that's going to matter. And it has to happen individually because when he returns, he's going to separate humanity. His people are going to be gathered and welcomed into his eternal kingdom and everybody else is going to face the judgment of God for their sin. The eternal destiny of men and women will hinge on what they personally did with the Lord Jesus Christ, how they responded to him. It won't matter who they're married to. A man or a woman can't enter the kingdom of God on the faith of their spouse. It won't matter who they work with or who their friends are. A man or a woman cannot enter the kingdom of God on the faith of a friend or the faith of a co-worker. The only thing that will matter is has the man or the woman personally bowed before King Jesus, confessing Him as Lord and Savior. The sad reality when the king returns to consummate his kingdom on that day is there will be spouses in the same bed who will end up in different places. One will be gathered into his kingdom and the other left to face the judgment of God on their sin. There'll be friends and co-workers working in cubicles next to each other. One will be gathered into the kingdom of the king and the other To eternal judgment. It's very personal. And at that point, it'll be final. There will be no further opportunity to enter the kingdom when the king returns. Jesus Christ is the king. His kingdom arrived when He arrived. His kingdom was inaugurated when He died and when He was raised, defeating sin and death. But His kingdom work is not done. He is going to return to consummate His kingdom. He is going to come back to earth and He's going to establish the eternal kingdom that He will rule forever. The only question is, Should it happen in your lifetime and mine? Should it happen this week? Will we be ready? Will you be ready? Every single person in this room will see Jesus Christ, the risen King, face to face. Every single one of us will see him. Because the risen King is returning. The only question is, will we be prepared or unprepared? Are we ready or are we not? He's going to return in a time that nobody knows. It's going to be sudden and it is going to be clear and it's going to be obvious. It's not going to be in an expected time. People are going to be going about their everyday life doing their normal stuff. One of the things I remember when I was deployed in Bahrain a few years ago, was how different driving was there. There are a lot of ways driving was different there. But one of the ways that it was different was I never saw a police officer on the highway giving people speeding tickets. They had a different system there. The system was they had cameras on all the main arteries of the roads. And the cameras would take a picture of you if you were speeding your license plate, and they would mail you a ticket, usually a very expensive one. But here was the thing. About half mile or so, sometimes a quarter mile, before the camera, if you were paying attention, on the side of the road was a little sign, and it had a picture of a camera. So you knew when you saw that sign, you were approaching a camera. Now, pause with me for a minute. What do you think everybody did on the road there? They saw that sign and they hit the brakes, went through the camera, and they hit the gas and went 1,000 miles per hour and would kill you if you got in their way until they saw the next sign and they slowed down for the camera, right? They had a warning. And so they adjusted their behavior in order to not deal with the consequences of their sin. <laughs> Jesus says, when I return, there's no sign like that. There's going to be no opportunity for you to get things right in a hurry. But I'm coming back, and you better be ready. Are you ready this morning? Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He is coming to establish his eternal kingdom. It's already established in the hearts of all those who believe. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you need to understand you are in tremendous peril If Christ were to return today, you would go out into eternal judgment and it would be a hopeless eternity for you. Don't let this day go by staying in that condition. Why not today bow before the King? Repent of your sin. Confess it to Him. Entrust your life to Him to save you. Trust in his shed blood on the cross for your sin to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. Bow before him as Lord and Savior of your life, that you might enter his kingdom and be a subject of his kingdom so that when he returns, you will respond with joy and excitement. May all God's people look to his coming with joy for the king is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we only really skimmed the surface of all of this this morning, but I trust that through this flyover of the nature of your kingdom, you've reminded us of the gospel truths that are critical. You were the King who came, the long-awaited Messiah the son of David, the one who would fulfill all the the promises made to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Judah, the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecies, the king who would reign on David's throne. And the moment you were born, your kingdom arrived, and it's been expanding ever since as people like many in this room who heard the gospel and believed and bowed before you as king and became subjects of your kingdom but we're so mindful this morning that there are many many people in this world perhaps even many in this room who have never done that who have never looked themselves in the mirror and been honest about their own sin and their own rebellion against you they told themselves lies, that they're a pretty good person, and compared to other people, they're not bad, they'll be okay in the end. But your word says the wages of sin is death. And that no man comes to the Father except by you. We celebrate, Lord Jesus, that you are a king who inaugurated your kingdom by dying, defeating sin, and by being raised from the dead, defeating death. Once and for all, on our behalf, so that we can place our faith and trust in you and have a secured eternal life in your kingdom. I pray this morning, Lord, you would draw anyone in this room who does not know you in that way to you and that they might be saved. And for the rest, Lord, remind us that you're a king who's returning. Give us joy in our hearts for the day when you will come and establish consummate once and for all your visible, eternal public reign. We long to see you face to face. We long to see the peace and the righteousness that you bring. We long to see an end to the evil and the darkness of our world. We long to see a day when lunatics don't go into schools and shoot children. We long to see a day when people don't rape and pillage in our cities. We long to see a day when righteousness reigns and the curse of sin is gone. And we know that you're going to bring bring that when you come. So we long for that and we look with excitement and joy. Make us ready in our hearts for that day. Make us ready in our soul. Let us be about the work of telling others how they can be ready too. For we pray it in your holy name, amen.